Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm really glad you're with us, and I think you're going to find this interesting. We have a Sylvain Charlebois talking about one of the hottest issues over the last couple of years, and that, of course, rising food prices, your grocery prices, what you're paying. Well, the new report, the food price report across Canada is just out. I'll ask him more about that. Bottom line, we're all going to be paying more. It doesn't. It depends where you live, how much more, but it's a significant jump over the rate of inflation. Food is going to be the number one topic. But why is that the case? Sylvain Charlebois joins me. Also, of course, I've got Ozzy with us. I've got Victor talking about some rapid changes in the marketplace, you know, interest rate related. Mike Levy's going to chime in on that. I also have, though, a terrific Goofy Award. I mean, the whole anti-Semitic trope has got even more ammunition over the last week. (laughs) Did you see the three presidents, well, one from MIT, one from Harvard, one from the University of Pennsylvania, their testimony in the Senate, Believe me, that's food for fodder. Tons to talk about in the Goofy Award and much more coming your way. But first, I'm not sure the degree to which the perceptions of the left-wing bias at the CBC have also influenced the public's overall view of the mainstream media. But there's no doubt that we have a decline in trust, whether it's because the perception of left-wing views get more thorough airing in newspapers and TV, although I say Fox News kind of suggests it's more complicated than that, The dominant uncritical coverage of the government's COVID narrative seems to likely played a part in Canada, where it was rare to hear opinions, even from experts, that challenged the government's narrative. I mean, it's popular to hear that the advent of social media and the Internet have undermined the financial viability of the legacy media in Canada. And that, no doubt, does play a part. But I think it would also be a mistake to overlook that the impetus that declining trust in the mainstream also created an environment for alternative media like True North or The Rebel, Post Millennial, Epoch Times. And increasing taxpayer support for government-approved newspapers, government-approved digital services from the media fund, I think also fuels suspicion. And when it comes to the perception, though, of the CBC itself, their bias, even their head, Kathleen Tate, has acknowledged there's a feeling that, in quotes, the CBC is a mouthpiece for the Liberal government. Although what's noteworthy is that she shows no curiosity whatsoever as to why that's the overwhelming perception. And please note, this is well before Pierre Polyev was elected Conservative Party leader. I mean, Paul Wells, one of the most senior political commentators in the country, called the CBC the government's most spectacular public relations asset. And of course, accusations of bias were certainly inflamed when the biggest unions representing CBC employees, including the journalists, that's Uniform, the Canadian Media Guild, both registered in 2019 as third-party spenders with Elections Canada, but it was specifically to oppose the Conservatives, did the same in 221. And in a step that obliterated any claim that the CBC was impartial, I think it's one of the most incompetent things I've seen from any management, is that they sued the Conservative Party in the 219 during the election because they used a few seconds of the leaders' debate. Of course, they lost. But what did that do to any perception of impartiality? Well, it obliterated it. But when what might be the least bang for the buck in broadcast history, the CBC receives like 1.24 billion tax dollars, along with another 122 million in subscriber fees, due to the fact that the CRT mandates that every household in Canada with cable or satellite pay for the CBC new network news and uh, the French co- uh, counterpart, RDI yet it reaches only about 5% of the available audience in prime time. CBC News Network reaches only about 2%. But here's the thing. 
What rarely gets noticed is while defunding a chunk of the CBC has been a popular stance of conservative leader Pierre Polyev, there's no sign that anyone, as I said, at the CBC, starting with Catherine Tate or anyone else in government, seems interested into why that's a popular stance. No sign they care why the general public's perception is that the network is a mouthpiece for the Liberal Party. I mean, my goodness. Think about the comment from CBC producer, a former producer. She resigned after eight years, and she says this. To work at the CBC is to consent to the idea that a growing list of subjects are off the table, that dialogue itself can be harmful, that the big issues of our time are already settled. It's to capitulate to certainty, to shut down critical thinking, to stamp out curiosity. And I think there's millions of Canadians who are nodding their head, which is why when they announce a 10% cut to CBC's workforce, uh, many people applaud. And again, I would invite you to consider how different the media coverage of the cuts would have been if it happened under a Pierre Polyev government. I think the same people would be going nuts. But it's the lack of curiosity that's not restricted just to the attitudes about the CBC, but it's a lack of curiosity about why there's falling trust in the overall mainstream media. Why numerous polls consistently show declining trust in both government and the media, though? And by the way, this is why I care about this. I'm always thinking about this because I think the mainstream media could play a pivotal role in protecting the public's interest in elevating the public debate on all sides in raising the level of integrity in politics. But the consistent decline in trust suggests that's not happening. And I want to just point this out before I'm done. There's some really good people in the media furthering the public interest. We've had Terry Glavin and Sam Cooper both on the show. Excellent work. Jeremy Nuttall, Robert Fife, Stephen Chase, and there are others, including names behind the scenes that you don't know. But I can tell you, I've worked personally with some really good producers. Right now, I work with one of the best on global TV, Marsha Gabriel, who I assure you is totally committed to doing excellent work. But at the same time, I also cringe when I hear some of the coverage of politicized issues. I mean, we could be talking healthcare, education, climate, economics, finance. It smacks way more of advocacy than objective reporting. And that's where things really go off the rails. I mean, think of all the stories that were phony in the last few years. I mean, topping that list is probably Trump's collusion with Russia to win the 216 election. We talked about the Steele dossier, phony. Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, phony. COVID lab week was a conspiracy theory. Well, that seems to be the consensus now. And of course, what really was irksome for many people, the trucker's convoy was financed by foreign interests. And recently, how about this one? I mean, it was astounding to me. The false accusation that the Israelis had bombed the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza City. I mean, but it's the failure to acknowledge those mistakes. Far too often, the mea culpas and corrections are not forthcoming. And I think that kills the media's credibility. I mean, gone. It's one thing to make a mistake, but come, mistake, but compounding it by not acknowledging it. Problem. If instead of ignoring the declining trust, the media wants to reverse that trend, acknowledge prominent mistakes. Start the, you know, it would be an effective start. Acknowledging the error of simply repeating the government's narrative that turned out to be wrong during COVID would be a good start. I mean, that list is a long one. To be fair, the CBC has made a list of corrections, but they're ordered by their ombudsman. Some for lack of impartiality and bias, others for misleading and outright inaccuracy. But it's also noteworthy that all the areas seem to be in the same ideological direction. But I want to acknowledge that there are many in the media and the public who think the problem with credibility is overblown. 
I have no doubt that some of the accusations may well be unfair, but nonetheless, the declining trust in the media is a fact. Ignoring it or making excuses that ignore the role media itself plays only assures that the trend continues. As I said, we've got a great show planned for you, but I also want to remind you that we've got, of course, how could you miss this? We've got the World Outlook Conference, but we're giving away a one ounce Maple Leaf gold coin. That's right. We're giving away a one ounce Maple Leaf gold coin. Uh, And again, it's for everybody who buys a ticket to the World Outlook Conference this month in December. Hey, And it's easy to do. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the events button, sign up. You know you're going to do it anyways. You might as well do it now. Why? You can get into that draw for the one ounce Maple Leaf gold coin. You know, I look back over the last year, well, two years plus, and one of the big challenges for people is, of course, the cost of food. That's something you don't get to skip. I mean, as you know, on this show, I always emphasize food, shelter, and energy. Uh, Other things we can leave aside, but food has been a really difficult uh, challenge, and the price rises there for over half of Canadians, and I still don't think we really get what it's like if you are trying to make ends meet. Man, it makes a difference when you do that. But I look back, as I say, over this last while, and it seems that the depth of our understanding of the actual food, grocery industries doesn't go much beyond, oh, I don't like higher prices. Well, I get it. Most Canadians don't seem to understand what it's like on the farm or don't understand the manufacturing side of food, don't understand the grocery business itself. Well, someone who's done the most work, I think, in the country on trying to rectify that is Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of the Dalhousie Food Analytics Lab, and he joins me now. Sylvain, you know I appreciate super busy week for you because, of course, of the big report coming out, the food price report, but I appreciate you finding time for us. Oh, my pleasure. I've been on your show many times. I absolutely enjoy the work that you guys are doing. Well, I appreciate that. Now, I just want to say, speaking of work, uh, why the food price report is so important is that you go across the country, and it's a collaboration of, uh, what, 30 scholars. you got your own staff. You go out from the West Coast to the East Coast, and that's the report, if you know what I mean. So you get a phenomenal perspective and the expertise And I guess also the fact that you've got a lot of stuff right. I mean, this time last year, you were telling us, hey, don't worry, by the end of the year, you're going to beat that five, five, six, seven percent range, but going to be worse in the meantime. Well, you were uh, the report was right on all of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, So out of 13 years, we've been we've been correct. Eleven. So we've been wrong. We've been wrong, but we're mostly right. And we're one of the few groups in Canada that will go back in time to assess themselves. And that's what we do. The first chapter of every uh, report, we actually assess how we did. And so this year, um, uh, we were satisfied with our forecast, but obviously at 5.6, it's certainly not a rate that everyone wants. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. we all agree on that. We want food inflation to be within that sweet spot of 1.5 to 2.5%. And so we're still far away from that. Yeah, and just to remind people that, again, and people get confused on this, that the rate of inflation measures the rate of growth, increase in prices. It's not the cost itself. That's and right. So you can get five years of, or five months, rather, of 0% growth in prices. It's still a hardship for Canadians meeting that first jump, and that's what we're still going to be dealing with. I mean, but, you know, I love this line. You did an open letter 
really discussing the challenges in informing people about the grocery market. And I just loved one of the lines. And I think it comes from, you know, you start politicizing something. Uh, the first thing to go seems to be accuracy and truth, et cetera. But I love the line you said, yeah. your hope for this coming year in 224 was we'd stop being so embarrassing and ridiculous when we discuss food prices. Maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, it's, uh, I got to tell you, Mike, uh, writing that op-ed felt good. Uh, mm-hmm. After a year of uh, of of really embarrassment, and, mm-hmm. and frankly, uh, I re- was questioning the intellect of some of our, our of our fellow Canadians out there, wondering: Are they making a true effort in understanding supply chain economics here? Because I, I think we've missed an opportunity, and starting with the politicians, to invite Canadians to better understand food systems instead of. Doing that, we basically decide to allow people to point fingers at one person or uh, a couple of companies, and it, it really was, I think, a disservice to to Canadians. Uh, food inflation is a complex issue. It was a pheno- it was a it was a global phenomena. The entire planet was impacted by food inflation, and we need to make sure that people are aware of what's actually going on here. Let's break down some of the factors, variables that uh, that go into for sort of the end grocery price. I mean, I mentioned along the way, you just said supply chain and, you know, this manufacturing, the cost structure all the way across. But maybe give us some idea of what are the factors? I mean, it's not just, hey, I don't like uh, higher prices in the end. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, first of all, in in the uh, in the report in Canada's food price report, we kind of dissect the entire supply yeah. chain. Uh, we have this dashboard we designed 14 years ago to allow people to understand what all of the factors are that actually will impact food prices in the end, starting with climate change, uh, currency, um, the food distribution landscape, the competitiveness of it, uh, policies. Yes, we have to talk about policies. Uh, I know politicians don't like to realize that sometimes some of their decisions actually will have an impact on food affordability. but those decisions actually do matter quite a bit. So we look at that. We look at geopolitics. We all know by now that geopolitics are a big issue. And of course, right now, our biggest concern is uh, is uh, the potential escalation of what's going on in the Middle East uh, in particular. And so all of these things actually will impact food affordability in Canada one way or another. But over the last couple of years, obviously, it's been it's been about inflation, not deflation or uh, stagflation, unfortunately. You know, one of the things that surprises people, uh, not that, as you just said, that we've got a food inflation problem throughout the world. Uh, I mean, anybody, for example, I, you know, I do a list of which countries already have a breakdown in their currencies where confidence has left their currencies. And we know the all stars of that. It might be Venezuela. You know, it could be Turkey, could be South Africa. The list is a really long one. It's over 150 countries. But uh, just the importance of uh, you know, anybody importing, the currency importance is, is, is right there. And it's that's an example of the type of thing that is completely ignored. I mean, in Canada, we import a lot of food, depending where you are geographically, of course, but we import a lot of food. So the price of the Canadian dollar, say, vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar, is a really big factor that I rarely hear. Never heard a politician talk about it, by the way. No, no. And uh, they don't talk about taxes either at retail. Yeah. You see, 4600 Different products are taxed at retail in grocery stores in Canada. Nobody talks about that. Now, of course, some products should be taxed. They're not good for you. 
I think we all agree on that, but some products are actually quite healthy. And when food inflation is at 10%, you want to look into some of these policies that are penalizing not only people who want to buy a healthy product, and we're talking 15%, sometimes 60% in, in sales tax, in addition to inflation. That's a lot. Salad, sandwiches, things like that. I, I did bring to Parliament this year in, before FINA, the Finance Committee, an example of a, of a um, snack bar, a very amazingly healthy snack bar made by a Canadian company led by a wonderful uh, woman CEO, Sheena Russell, who I know. She's been on my podcast. And uh, that bar is actually taxed, and which really gives uh, that company a disadvantage, unfortunately. And people don't necessarily have access to an affordable yeah. snack bar. So those are some of the things that I think we need to address in Canada. Well, 4,600 products, though. I don't want that to go by <laughs> too quickly here. You know, that people, well, the again... Other, the other issue, of course, is when you leave the grocery store, you don't really know... Uh, for which products you were taxed on. Mm. Uh, that's the other issue. So we need some clarity so people are, are aware when they actually look at their receipts. Uh, let's come back to where Canada stands. As I said, a global problem. But I was looking at the G7 numbers that you put out at, at, food, at the Food Professor, and that's where you find Sylvain on uh, Twitter, Food Professor, simple, straightforward. Uh, but you put out the list of uh, on a regular basis of where's inflation at for f- groceries, uh, you know, for food. And Canada's second to least, you know, and I sort of laugh at those people who call greedflation. I says, does that mean we have the second least greedy grocery stores, uh, you know, in the Western <laughs> world? And of course, they don't look at it that way. But no, yeah, I mean, not. it's just such an absurdity, uh, the way that they've been dealing with that problem. Well, I mean, I would say this, though. I mean, uh, I don't think there's been any uh, profiteering going on over the last few years. I, I don't buy that. I don't see it in the data. I do, however, would acknowledge that uh, the camaraderie of five grocers, which I met in Ottawa, as yes. you know, Michael, I met with all five, along with Mr. Champagne. Uh, I would say that really uh, – their, their situation is comfortable. Uh, margins mm-hmm. are double what they are in the U.S. Okay? So is there, do we need more competition in Canada? Absolutely, we do. But we need to focus on making Canada an attractive place to invest. That's the key here. And Michael Medline yesterday when he was testifying before Parliament, he made the point about the code of conduct. I think that's the key. It's an abstract concept. A lot of people don't understand the code of conduct, but it would actually level the playing field for suppliers, independent grocers, and the big five as well. Because right now, Walmart and Loblaws are calling the shots. They like it. They don't want to lose that power. But it needs to be addressed in order to allow other independent grocers to have a better shot and also uh, processors to stick around. Nestle left this year. Kleenex Mm. left this year. And we're going to see more, Mike, leave because it's so difficult to do well as a food manufacturer in Canada. And, and that reflects, I mean, earlier this year where, you know, we've had the Bank of Canada weigh in on pricing for groceries. We had Competition Bureau. None of them found evidence of sort of this greedflation going on. But they did say exactly what you're doing. They pointed to a lack of competition. Interesting, again, how that's never on the agenda that I have not heard politicians discuss, how do we attract the capital investment 
uh, first of all, from a broad economic perspective, you don't like countries, uh, companies leaving. We've got lots of those examples. But in the grocery space, I think simply put, these people and your, you know, you've been, as I said, your report produced by 30 experts. Hey, we need more competition and we're not even addressing that issue. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's just right now when I'm when I'm listening to politicians and, and different pundits, the, fo- the focus is wrong. I think the focus needs to be on the mechanisms mm-hmm. allowing Ottawa to enable conditions to increase competition. Right now, all we're focusing on are prices at retail and we're trying to control and suppress prices as much as possible that's the wrong focus and it's the same thing with the carbon tax the carbon tax focus on retail prices is the wrong focus and and that's why i think it's important to recognize that uh, we need more work we need more data to better understand what competitiveness actually means in canada that would be a great conversation to have and especially based on research but uh as i say it's not one that the politicians seem keen on having uh at this point so yeah they're barking up the wrong tree to me that says we're going to have a difficult time making any meaningful progress here oh absolutely i think what what really concerns me uh, mike is that a lot of people are saying different things without without any empirical data uh, mm-hmm. That's our business as a lab. Our business is to actually bring the science, bring some science to very important conversations. And we do that with data. But right now, in the last 12 months uh, about food inflation, I think a lot of things have been said that were entirely inaccurate, really, or not based on any empirical data whatsoever. It's, it was all about emotions, and it became emotional. I mean, for a while, it was really about hating people, hating mm-hmm. CEOs, hating companies. And what I wrote in my last op-ed is that I actually truly believe that most Canadians have forgotten why companies exist in the first place. And that's a scary thought. Yeah, it comes down to me, you know, like just fundamentally to that old philosophical divide. I mean, we have people who literally would like to see Ottawa have far more control over food. And I'm thinking, gosh, are they going to do that, what they did for healthcare? I mean, I'm not going to be able to get a family doctor, so I'm not going to be able to eat. And of course, we do have a lot of historical examples of that. I mean, you know, one of the more impressive things that I think took place during the pandemic is that our grocery uh, shelves were full. Like we still, yeah. obviously things changed to some degree, but we still, I mean, it was no sweat for Canadians. They may have been paying the higher prices and I am sympathetic to people who couldn't afford that or it's a very hard, it's a hardship, but at least we had something. I mean, come on, compare that to those old pictures of East Germany or the former Soviet <laughs> Union, you know, and they'd go and there'd be one choice, you know, a single, a single box of macaroni, you know. Yeah, no, so, Exactly. So it's back to. And I think people underappreciate how capitalism works because uh, it does work. Uh, it has, I mean, it has limitations. I and that's why you, the state need, needs to play an important and proactive role. But uh, I, I just, I just believe that a lot of people just don't understand uh, the implications of some of the things they're actually suggesting yes. as they speak. You know, regulating prices. Uh, a windfall tax, all of these things that we heard in 2023, my goodness, they were very, very concerning. Well, and think about that. It's it's the opposite to what you would do if you want to attract more competition. And again, 
there's it's a complicated subject and i'm oversimplifying to this degree but if you do go to the states i think one of the things that every one of us notices is the variety of choice especially at that sort of uh for lack of a better term on my part discount you know uh, outlets i mean at the top end you could have other things like whole foods at least before amazon purchased them were a pretty top end joint you know uh yep. but boy you go down there and you've got a lot of choice and i think as I say, it's the conclusion that the Bank of Canada ran, the Competition Bureau. It's what you guys have been talking about at the Food Analytics Lab for ages is, you know, some of this problem could be fixed very quickly if we had more competition. Well, more government intervention is not the way to attract that capital. Well, I mean, and, and that's that's why I think the code is is really the 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 proper compromise for everyone. Uh, if you look at uh, countries where there is a code of conduct, uh, food prices are actually more stable because you see in in supply chain management, the more you see players talk to each other, mm-hmm. like not, not in an illegal way, but when you see more vertical coordination, understanding inventories, understanding demand. Demand chain management, basically, you start with the consumer and you go up the food chain to predict fluctuations, to predict shifts. Uh, As we saw in March of 2020, for example, with all the empty shelves, the more you have vertical coordination, the less likely you'll see prices fluctuate at retail. And that's exactly what's going on in Australia. That's exactly what's going on in the UK. That's exactly what's going on in Ireland, where there, there is a code. And so I think over time, Canadians would be rewarded by the implementation of code. You actually suppress the power that companies like Loblaws and Walmart have, and you give more power to suppliers, more power to the other players, so they can actually have a shot at surviving. Because right now mm-hmm. they're just suffocating. Uh, elaborate a little bit more, like the the, the two or three uh, major tenets of a code of conduct, if we were to uh, adopt one. So. Right now, if Loblaws, if you do, if you do business with Loblaws and Loblaws calls you and say, well, we're increasing listing fees by 0.5%, you have no say. You have to just take it mm-hmm. or you leave. And that's it. Last year's pause sell between Frito-Lay and Loblaws, if you remember, that was a year and a half yep. ago. That was a watershed moment for the industry. All of a sudden, you saw PepsiCo the largest CPG company in our country saying no to its number one customer. I can tell you since then, the tone has changed. All of a sudden, suppliers are saying, hmm, maybe we can actually do something. Because right now, if you talk to companies like Kellogg's, General Mills, Mondelez, they don't want to invest in Canada because it's not worth it. Margins are too slim. And that's Mm -hmm. why they're just running plants uh, and those plants look like they're in the 50s, really, or 60s. Yeah. And so you need more investment and you need more capital. You need more companies believing in the game market. And right now, because of the power that a few players have, you don't. The code would give companies a safe place to go to settle disputes, mm. to give a chance for parties to be heard. And that would make a huge difference. And it basically would actually allow suppliers to win some battles once in a while. Right now, they're they're all losers. Yeah. Uh, any? Do you see an appetite? Uh, in Ottawa. Well, the for plan that? right now. The plan right now. Well, there is a there is appetite, but 
it, not enough. <laughs> so right now the plan is to implement a code in in May, but if this code is not mandatory and it is not so far, and I've said to Minister Champagne, in order that code to work, you need to make it mandatory. And of course, we all know that Loblaws and Walmart are against a mandatory yeah. code. They're for a voluntary code. Uh, a few weeks ago, Galen Weston said. Well, if we implement a code, it's going to cost Canadians a billion dollars more. No, it's not. It's not. I, I completely disagree. I have a lot of respect for Gillian Weston, but I disagreed on that. Because when you look at what's going on in Australia and the UK, people are actually not necessarily saving money, but they have access to predictable pricing. And food inflation doesn't really go like this. It goes more like this. Yes. And when, when inflation is like this, it's easier to plan as a grocer. It's easier to plan as a supplier. And Canadians, consumers have more access to loss leaders, promotions, and rebates. And that's what you want. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there is a role for Canadian consumers to, like, I'm a big shop and compare guy, you know, going to the, we only have a few choices and I appreciate that in the grocery market, but I still, yeah. you know, shop and compare because it's, it's a tough go for people right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, let, let me just ask, well, sorry. And by the way, Michael, for 2024, I actually am expecting uh, there's going to be a lot of price matching going on mm -hmm. uh, and that will continue. But I actually think that during the second part of 2024, we could start seeing some price beating, which means that we could potentially, with some verticals, we could actually see some price wars going on. So, because things are tighter, you're hearing it from Walmart in the US, commodity prices are lower. I can see 2024 to be a much friendlier uh, year for uh, grocery shoppers uh, who actually. Uh, have a few bucks to spend at the grocery store. Uh, I do believe that 2024 is going to be a much better year for most Canadians. I, I love to be finishing on that because there's a big smile on people's faces. There's there's That's light right. at the end of the tunnel, you know, Absolutely. on this one. And, and we are seeing some things, you know, I, I saw that flour and coffee prices were down. Unfortunately, sugar prices right. are up, you know, so that's on the other side. Well, I sugar's mean, the exception because of you guys. You got a yeah. labor dispute going on in Vancouver. We need to settle this, but here's here's the deal, Mike. That labor dispute is going to last months. You know why? Mm. Try to politicize a labor dispute affecting a sugar plant. Yeah, yeah. Sugar. <laughs> People think we have too much sugar. Why yes, bother? absolutely. Like, is that really a bad thing to see a plant yeah. shut down for a while? Windsor Salt in Ontario was shut down for eight months. Be right. Why? Because they manufactured salt, salt. and sodium. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the overback. Well, look, Sylvain, I want to thank you for finding time for us. And, and, I, and I'm serious about finishing on a more positive note. But I want to encourage people to go out. I mean, this is a obviously it's a major, major story, a major issue happening here. But the, the lab just put out its report this week. Uh, the food price report, you can get it online. As I say, collaboration, 30 scholars and the staff, of course, at Food Analytics, uh, you know, led by Sylvain Charlebois. Uh, the, uh, the more, I'm big on this on everything, you know, big, big thing, but, you know, evidence-based, you know, the more we're aware, the better the discussion can be leading to better solutions. So that's a great starting point. Congratulations to you and your team. And thanks so much for finding time. And I wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season.
To you too, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Time now for the quote of the week. I don't know about you, but I found one of the most shocking aspects of the reaction in Canada to the October 7 terrorist attack has been the willingness of people who call themselves feminists and a member of the Me Too movement to ignore the sexual atrocities perpetrated against women. I mean, we're talking about like people like Van, uh, Victoria City Councilor Susan Kim, uh, the mayor, Marianne Alto, who six weeks after the attack said, well, she didn't have enough information uh, to condemn what Kim had said, i.e., I don't believe this. We had the letter we featured a while ago, a couple of weeks ago from the university uh, professor, the academic community, University of Alberta, University of Calgary, again, who refused to believe the live streaming reams of video evidence from Hamas itself. Didn't believe the numerous firsthand reports from survivors. Which brings me to the quote of the week by Iranian journalist Masai Alinejad. In quotes, to the feminists in Germany and all over the world, Hamas, Islamic Republic, and Taliban rape women, harass women, shame our bodies in public, on camera to create fear. But please be as brave as Iranian women and say that loud. Islamism, Sharia laws are scary. In Iran, we get beaten up, lashes, and killed if we don't practice Islamic laws. In the West, we get canceled in the name is Islamophobia if we just share our tragic stories. Phobia is an irrational fear, but our fear of Islamism, our fear of hearing Allah Akbar before execution and terror is rational. Do you not think that I'm safe miles away from Iran? No. The Islamic Republic sends killers or hired assassins in the West to get rid of us who dare to speak up. If we don't get united to end Islamic Republic and its proxies, they will get united to end all of us who want freedom, equality, and dignity. The Bank of Canada met this week, and I think to no one's surprise, it didn't raise interest rates, but the debate continues. When are they going to, I think in this case, lower rate, despite the fact that the bank says, oh, no, we still are worried about inflation, still could put upward pressure. But yeah, the debate is, when do they start lowering? Mike Levy joins me now. Mike, what was your key takeaway from the Bank of Canada statement? Well, first, Mike, they're running parallel with the U.S. because uh, the U.S. Fed Reserve Chief Tiff Macklem is, is basically reading from the same songbook. And not unlike the U U.S., it was still not able to drop its warning. And there's the message. It's warning it could raise rates again if needed. That cloud purposely hangs over the decisions. And, and as I said, Macklem's was a parallel announcement to an earlier one by the U.S. Fed Chief. And they're not raising rates, or sorry, Powell taking exactly the same stance, uh, not lowering rates. Inflation is easing. However, wages continue to accelerate, Mike, in both countries. And he also warned there is no definitive path. Hear this, because this is what I took away from it. This is what I took away from Macklem. There is no definitive path to lowering rates anytime soon. You know, it's so interesting. There's so much to this, and we can't sum it up in just a couple of minutes. But, of course, you know, the main driver in Canada now above their inflation target are the rates they set, the mortgage market. You know, the very things that they set are the ones that keep us well above, you know, let's say above 3%, but we'd be back down to 2%, their target, without it. But there's a lot to this. I mean, clearly the market is saying we expect rates to drop in the second half of, the, of next year, if not sooner. Uh, again, both... Uh, the Federal, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell and our own Tiff Macklin, 
I think are worried that the market's going to get ahead of itself. That's why they both have made that sort of caveat. Oh, you know, rates could still go up. I don't think they're getting that from the data, but I think they're worried that, hey, look what happened in the bond market, Mike. As soon as the hint was rates were going down, presto, there was a huge drop in rates, you know, as bond prices rose, uh, you know. So, yeah, I think they're more worried about the psychological changes haven't taken place yet. They'd, see, they'd like us more depressed, I think. <laughs> well, they're doing a good job, Mike. Yeah. But the thing is, they're, they're warning the economy is no longer – they're telling us the economy is no longer in excess demand. That excess demand is easing, which would be a real road marker for them to start to talk about maybe lowering rates. But the expectation they're going down, this hasn't been going on long enough. It is not hurting Canadians enough nor Americans. And they have to, and I hate to say it, get to a place where there's some pain across the spectrum until they get that they can't start to lower rates even though when you take a look at our gdp figures mike they're flatlining and yeah. you take a look at employment unemployment is going up but you can't put that together because it would be just be too soon canadians or americans would be back spending again and now all we're doing is spreading it out over another couple of years. Yeah, I think they're worried about that that resurgent in that way. Uh, it's it's interesting because the statistics themselves have to be, you got to dig a little deeper, like the impact of the higher population. I was reading the numbers about credit card debt being up. Well, of course it would be when you've added a million people. Some of them got to be on credit. You know, once they got here, we issued 6 million more credit cards in the last 12 months. But again, the population growth can account for a heck of a lot of that. I think the other thing, though, to be clear on is that the U.S. economy is stronger than the Canadian economy. Uh, you know, and they're parts of both economies. We've been saying since the get-go, they're going, what do you mean a soft landing? We've been in a hard landing. I look at the U.S. real estate as a great example of that in many areas. That's a hard landing, manufacturing, a hard landing. I think it's just as, a, as we keep saying, it shows you how complicated, how many segments there are in the economy. But I guess I'll come back to this. It looks like the consensus, though, Mike, is we will get lower rates next year. We will, Mike. And then uh, you've got to take a look of whether it'll be one time, two times, first quarter, second quarter. But they're even kiboshing that. My opinion is they are going to lower twice in the first, well, let's say between January and the end of April. I believe there's going to be two mm -hmm. uh, uh, bringing down of rates. But Mike, that's just telling us how bad it is going to get between now and then, because be careful what you wish for, Bank of Canada, because if you're wishing uh, wishing for an economy who that that's at a precipice and maybe fall off a cliff a little bit, keep doing what you're doing, that's what's going to happen. But ergo, that becomes good news because then they'll finally be able to start to lower the rates. Well, and we did get that. Third quarter had a contraction you know, both second and third were sort of net zero when you talk about our economy in Canada. But the third quarter was a contraction. And that's what they alluded to, that clearly the higher rates had started to impact uh, consumer spending. So we're already there. And we'll just see. You're right. If you're saying that we're going to get a couple of sooner than later rate cuts, it just means the economy sucks. 
Exactly right. And I think one of the driving forces here, Mike, and we have to take into consideration is the increase in wages across the board in both Canada and the U.S. And uh, everybody, everybody has got these huge wage increases. And I say huge, it's relative to what they were getting before. That's money that they can go out and spend. So they have to dampen the economy enough that the money that they're going to spend is not going to have that huge impact on inflation. Yeah, and as they say, that, that the first time we got a strong indication was the third quarter. We'll see if that goes through the holiday season, which, of course, is so key. But, yeah, the, the, they're lining up now. That while the central banks on both sides aren't talking about rate cuts, analysts are lining up on putting it on the scale how much, how fast, you know, exactly what the rollout's going to be. But I think we're, we're fair to say the consensus is for lower rates. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, obviously, with that one, uh, you know, and it depends, again, as you said, on the strength of the economy. Well, don't quote me on this one, but I, you, you probably will. I'd yes. say two by the end of April. That's my guess, and I'll put it out there. Okay. Well, we'll be following it, and I will be quoting you nonstop. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mike, you go out and have a great week. And thanks, Mike. You, you also. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And I got a bonus for you. It might be, well, it's on the short list. I've got a quote for you that's related to it. Might be the most outrageous quote I've ever heard. And both deal with the healthcare system. So please note, I said the system, not the dedicated people who work in it, but the system they're forced to work in. First, the stat, straightforward. Arguably the most damning stat of all amongst the sea of failures to do with access to care in Canada, where we rank dead last in so many categories when compared to other developed nations. But we got the research from secondstreet.org this week that found that government data shows at least 17,032 patients died on a wait list for surgery or diagnostic scans in 2022-23. 17,000 plus who died just on the surgical and diagnostic wait list. That number isn't the total of people died who died waiting for treatment. I hope that shocked you. But if it doesn't, I'm still going to bet the latest statement from CanMeds will. CanMeds, through the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, is a collaboration of 13 national provincial healthcare organizations. They're established to provide a framework that identifies and describes the abilities physicians require to effectively meet the healthcare needs of the people they serve. And they have a new framework proposal. Maybe I should say, insist that you sit down listening to this. Listen closely. A new model of CanMeds would seek to center values such as anti-oppression, anti-racism, and social justice rather than medical expertise. It would prioritize bi-directional relationships with patients, providers, communities, the land, the healthcare system, and society at large rather than the individual physician as a gatekeeper of professional knowledge. With this new model, we can reflect a stance of humility over hubris and demonstrate how we as physicians must be constantly seeking to learn, explore, critically reflect, and grow. Well, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, after all, we're also in a period where people talk about woke math and so many other aspects, but come on, this is unbelievable. You know, an approach that the doctor is no longer the gatekeeper a professional knowledge. Well, my advice is good luck, unless you want, in quotes, the land, the general community, and other non-medical professionals to determine your treatment. 
as I said, wow, five times over. Chatted with Michael Levy earlier about the interest rate in the Bank of Canada statement about rates being held flat, despite the fact that we contracted in the third quarter. But of course, that's the big subject in the real estate market too. What's happening with rates? But it's a little bit different. And I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in that to start with that. Ozzy, we've already seen rates drop in the bond market in anticipation of the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada. So the bond market didn't wait. It said, oh, we're going to sell, uh, you know, we're going to change. We're going to buy into bonds. Rates are going to go down. How is that impacting the mortgage? Have we seen any budge at all in the mortgage market, though? Well, it's too soon to tell as to, as to the long, long-term effect, but short-term, my goodness, in the United States, we dropped, uh, the, since the bond rate, as you point out, the 10-year bond rate dropped, almost, you know, from 5% to 4.1 or something like that. And that had an effect in the U.S. to go for an average 30-year term of 7.9 to 7.2, which happened to be the fastest decline in, in like a short period, like nine days since 2008. In Canada, the rates have now, uh, you know, they become competitive because the lenders have cut their rates multiple times over the last few weeks. So your insured rate now is down between 5.4 and 6%, uninsured at 6.5%, and the rental is is around 6.3 to 7%. And the range depends, Michael, on whether or not you just had your TV repossessed or not, you know, it's yeah. your, credit, your credit rating, but it's down. And, and again, in anticipation of the bank rate going down, you know, the Bank of Canada's rate, uh, you know, going down, because, I mean, that's what happened. I mean, you buy, you invest in stocks because you think of what it will do in the future. In this case, in the bond market is what it will do. Uh, so we could get into, you know, a drop in the Bank of Canada rate and not have a budge in the bond market because it's already dealt with that. It's already incorporated that into their in the bond pricing. Yeah, and not only that, but people have to realize the long-term rates, long-term mortgage rates for us, the five-year terms and so on, they're tied to the bonds, but the short-term yeah. rates, which the bank did not increase this time, they're the same as they have been for a while. So that's your variable rates. The interesting thing is that Equifax reports that there is some delinquency increases, in particular Ontario and B.C., Missed payments are up 122% on Ontario, 46% on BC. But before we run to the hills, yeah. it's not not that bad because we have not even gotten back to the delinquencies of pre-COVID. But so it's a, an interesting market to, we have a gaggle of economists, the, the Tal, Rosenberg, we have Porter from the Bank of Montreal, the TD Bank. We've got Jared Dreyer from Verico. They're all seeing interest rates come down. In the, in the first quarter. And of course, it's a, it's a guessing game of some magnitude. Yeah, and the bond market's already responded to that kind of forecasting. And, and yes, I've got forecasts that say go out to the end of 222. You've got the market actually putting in five rate drops. You know, so we'll have to see. I think it comes back down to individuals, though. Uh, you know, if you were an individual who yeah. in the last couple of, uh, you know, last year, let's say, we're sitting there moaning every day going, I wish I had locked in. You better revisit why you didn't. Should you, when you, if we indeed do get this drop, is that your trigger for locking in your rates? Uh, you know, we saw the challenges. If you've got a variable rate, you know, and rates go up, that was a, a heck of a lot of pressure. And it's still on there, Aussie. I mean, yeah. yes, we, as yeah. you just alluded to, yes, we've had a fall or we get a fall in interest rates, but when people come to remove the mortgage, it's certainly going to still be above what it was two, three, four years ago. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. And But that's also an argument for rates coming down because the Bank of Canada knows 500 billion plus are coming due in the next 24 months. Yeah. And, and the, the rumor is that our total GST collections are now just make paper for the interest that the government money has borrowed, you know, for us. And the United States, we have an election year coming. And generally, the Fed doesn't like to favor either one of the parties uh, by raising yes. or lowering the rate, right? So we have all of this hanging over us. And uh, but in the meantime, you place your bets, you make your money. It's your decision. <laughs> and by the way, back quickly uh, to your thing. I was amazed that the you know the Iowa caucuses for the U.S. presidential election uh, season they're starting in January. I mean, I knew that, yeah. but it's sort of yeah. my my gosh, or that soon you got Super Tuesday, you know, happening in the first week of March. We're in the you know we're about to step into the U.S. election cycle, and your point's well taken. The Federal Reserve, other central, you know, central banks are very uh, worried about being perceived to right. try to influence. So I think rate cuts are kind of off the table. I don't know, pick a time, three, four months before the actual vote in November. You know, they don't want to be seen as trying to influence. So, yeah, the action may take place in the second into the third quarter, but uh, not once we get real close to that election. So that's just one more variable to factor in yeah. what we think <laughs> is going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, yeah. In the meantime, how about this strategy, Ozzy? Very quickly. I had a friend ask me and I said, well, why don't we wait a little bit, uh, a buyer, why don't we wait a little bit, get a first one or two drops, uh, anticipating a further drop in the mortgage and bond rates, then get pre-approved. You don't have to own a house. You don't have to buy a house, but get your right. pre-approval because if the rates drop between then and the next 90 days, depending on the length of the pre-approval, hopefully it's 120, maybe you can get that. Yeah you get the lower rate. So there's no downside to get that pre-approval, but the housing prices may not have reacted fully uh, to that. They may be still on the slide. People have other reasons, whether the uh, mortgage rate was 6% or 5%, maybe they couldn't afford it on their renew, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, you should be pre-approved almost automatically. Yes, you can get 120 days. And also it's part of the contract that should the rates go down further than what you're committed to, they will go down with you. And yeah. then if a month goes by, well, renew it and I have another four months. I mean, stay on top of it. I think that's yes. excellent advice, you know, because it also keeps you engaged and you understand that you, you know, it's really up to you in the end to, to, to make the decision and be prepared. Certainly all the pre-sale buyers, my goodness gracious, if you're not pre-approved, you have to have your head examined. Well, it's just a reminder. And of course, if the last three years hasn't taught us or four years haven't taught us anything, it's how volatile interest rates can be. I mean, we have record volatility in some areas. We're just seeing it in the bond market, as you alluded to. So, yeah, word to the wise. But you get that kind of wisdom all the time if you go to ozbuzz.ca. You can get the weekly newsletter. All you have to do is tell them where to send it, just put in your address. And plus, I'm getting Ozzy all warmed up for the World Outlook Conference. I said, don't, don't, don't share that gem yet, Ozzy. <laughs> don't share that gem. We're going to be, but there's going to be tons to talk about because some of this environment's going to become a little clearer by then in the first week of February. So, uh, really looking forward to that. Lots of stuff uh, to be thinking about, Ozzy. Look forward to seeing you at the World Outlook Conference. And I look forward to it. And I will have some secrets to share that will be eyebrow raising. Now, Michael, I want to tell you though, we always talk about politicians, and the politicians say we can't afford a tax cut. Well, Steve Forbes says, maybe we can't afford the politicians. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, don't get me shaking my head. This is, oh my goodness. Ozzy, have a great week. You too, Mike, and all your listeners. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Let's go live to the trading disc now. Victor Dare joins me. Vic, uh, it's interesting. We talked about gold last week hitting a, a daily, a weekly, and a monthly close high. Well, it certainly took a breath this week. Yeah, we had a spectacular opening on Sunday afternoon, our time, uh, Monday morning, Asia time. The, the market traded up to just under uh, $2,100, a, a real spike. Now, that is a thin volume time, as you could imagine. And the prices spiked up and within eight hours had given it all back again. So a very volatile start to the week. At the end of the week here, gold is actually lower than it was at the end of last week, despite having that big run. We had a high to low range here of $140 an ounce this week. I always think that traders are involved there. They make money on an abrupt move up, make money you know, protecting it or playing it going down. So that creates at least some of that volatility there. But again, we're seeing all sorts of things. You want volatility. How about the 10-year bond market? I mean, all of a sudden, everybody says, hey, rates are going down. And it doesn't wait for the Federal Reserve. It just reflects it immediately in the bond market. Yeah, I mean, I think the bond market like is is the market. Everything sort of has to move the way the bond market does. We had 10-year yields get to 16-year highs uh, six weeks ago. And then the fall from about a 5% yield down to about 41 that's the, the biggest, most dramatic fall we've seen in 10-year bond yields, I think, in, in over 40 years. So it's been a big move. And let me just say this. I don't think we would have seen this tremendous rally we've had in the stock market if we had not have had that big rally in the bond market. It's just that important. Well, again, as you've been saying uh, many uh, since the get-go, once people felt there was a green light with lower rates, you know, it's kitty bar at the door. Like, look out, something's happening here. Uh, but also, I just want to acknowledge the volatility that we've seen in the bond market. I mean, the massive move, uh, you know, up in prices, pushing yields down, followed by the massive move, you know, in prices down, yields going up, you know, over this last sort of four or five, six years. Uh, it's been astounding, the speed of which it's moved. And this is, as you're alluding to, this is just another example of it. Well, one of the fellows that I really pay attention to is Howard Marks. Mm -hmm. and, you know, he takes the big picture. He's the, the, the sort of value investor. But he says in one of his recent letter that the decline we had in bond yields from around 1981 to here the last couple of years was the most important event for the financial markets period. You know, we, I, I really do believe that huge fall in interest rates from about 15% yield on the 10-year down to half a percent, yep. you know, in, in August of 2020, uh, absolutely underwrote, you know, the rise in, in other assets, whether it was real estate or uh, certainly the stock market and so on. Hey, I got to go to something else. I just I mentioned it earlier in the show. It's just me what I've been focusing on. But I'm shocked that we've got the Iowa caucuses for the U.S. presidential you know, election. You're like in whatever, five, six weeks. And then you've got that Super Tuesday, the first week of March. You know, it's election season is what I'm trying to say here. Uh, you know, and it looks like we're, we still look if we held it today that we'd have uh, President Trump versus President Biden there with uh, Trump getting a bit of a nod. Well, you know, Mike, short-term traders are going to be looking ahead to next week. We've got the CPI number in the States. We've got the FOMC is going to be meeting. Mm -hmm. But I get the feeling from, you know, I, I follow a lot of people. I subscribe to a lot of services. I get the feeling that actually the market is already looking ahead to the election, which is 11 months away. And they're, they're starting to say, oh, my gosh, 
what would happen if Trump got elected. And Kevin Muir, who has been on the show sure. here many times, he, he put out his letter this week, and he had been dead wrong here two weeks ago. He was expecting the Fed to push back on this idea that they were going to cut rates. And he said, you know, I, I, I was dead wrong about that, but I wondered why, and I think, I wonder if the Fed Reserve, if Chairman Powell didn't push back because he's starting to look ahead, that the, if we, let's say, raise rates too much or keep them too high for too long and the economy's in the tank, that's going to pave the road for Donald Trump to be the next president. And I think there's a lot of people in jobs now that would not want to see that happen. Well, and you think of the implications, if we can draw some conclusions from uh, the last time he was president, I think, you know, uh, positive for the oil drilling, positive for pipelines, positive for other energy. You know, I'm not so sure he wants to be involved geopolitically anywhere. You know, the list is a long one. My point only being some real changes would take place, I think, if you got back in the White House. Yeah, I think the sentiment in the stock market right now is is very bullish, you know, very risk mm-hmm. on for at least the first six months of next year. But you can see in the different charts that I look at, sentiment just goes like, I don't know what's going to happen once you get past, say, June, July of next year, when the market is just, you know, weeks away, as it were, from a major election. And that's just the American election, as we discussed previously. There's elections all over the planet coming up in 2024. So... the markets will start to try to price these things in and we may see some market moves that don't make sense to us because of that. And of course, uh, let's also jump on board with the, it looks like an anti-establishment trend continuing, you know, whether we're looking at the Netherlands and other places, we'll see how that plays out, but that also will provide momentum. Uh, The bottom line, Victor, it's going to be a very interesting year. That's not particularly insightful to say, but we're going to have lots to talk about when we come to the World Outlook Conference. I mean, lots to talk about. Uh, We'll have had the Iowa caucus, for example, by then. Other primaries will be kicking into gear. Uh, We'll see more resolution, or we hope, uh, to the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. uh, Maybe uh, we get more progress in Ukraine. Who knows? Or worse, geopolitical tensions, more intense geopolitical uh, problems. I mean, there's just so much on the plate right now that, uh, of course, you're busy with it every day. I'm busy with it looking at it every day. But again, it sets the stage for a very interesting World Outlook Conference. Yeah, and we haven't even touched on energy. Uh, crude oh. oil has been just falling, falling, falling here from 95 down to below 70 uh, in the last couple of months. Joseph Schachter, our friend, put out a buy signal uh, this week. I think he timed it to the day, honestly, at least, you know, up until now. But, uh, yeah, what I guess happened there was OPEC had a meeting and announced they were going to do voluntary cuts. And the market said, you're going to do what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Really, are you? And and we're moving to a voluntary tax regime, too. Oh, Oh, good. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll volunteer to hold off for now. Vic, you go out and have a great week. People can find you at victoradare.ca. Victoradare.ca. Check him out, the weekly charts, uh, the summation of the week, and what he's looking forward to. Vic, thanks for taking the time. Have a great week. Hey, thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, it seems like anti-Semitism not only brings out the worst in some people, it makes them stupid and hypocritical. Remember all the talk, by the way, of safe spaces on university campuses? The culture that said, it is wrong to make anyone feel uncomfortable. 
with universities so quick to punish any perceived microaggression, even if the only person took only one person took offense. Kind of reminds me of the Lindsay Shepherd case that Sir Wilfrid Laurier illustrated. And if someone doesn't come forward to complain, well, the faculty can just make it up and threaten serious consequences. I mean, in Lindsay's case, if you don't remember, she was a TA. Her crime was showing a three-minute clip of two professors debating using preferred pronouns. And one of those profs was Jordan Peterson. Ms. Shepard offered no opinion on the clip, but her thesis advisors and two other in the academic community outright lied in saying there were complaints. There were no complaints. But the biggest proponents of safe uh, space approach to both teaching and campus life are elite colleges like Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania, whose presidents appeared at the congressional hearing on anti-Semitism this week. And under oath were asked, does calling for genocide of Jews violate your university's code of, code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? Well, that's a straightforward question that could have been addressed with a yes or no answer. But none of the presidents took that opportunity, instead started to talk about it depends on the context. A stance that none of those universities take when someone's feelings are hurt due to a microaggression. When asked specifically what context would make intimidating students calling for the death of all Jews, especially when we got evidence that many Jewish, uh, Jewish students feel unsafe on campus, lots of stories about them hiding in their dorm rooms with unlocks. So what actually is the context that's okay? Of course, they couldn't give examples of the context that screaming to death to all Jews was okay when it wasn't. In short, the testimony of the three university presidents, uh, presidents was inexplicably inept, bad. It had nothing to do, by the way, with their commitment to free speech. There's so many examples of universities punish, punishing absolutely legal speech. But my question is this. Would their answers have been different? Would they have been unequivocal if the question was, does calling for the genocide of blacks violate your university's code of conduct? or rules regarding bullying or harassment, or calling for the killing of all gays or transgender people, which Hamas actually does, would that violate the university code of conduct? Because I can't believe the presidents would not have shot back. Yes, it does immediately. No context required. But in this case, wow, their equivocation spoke volumes. That's all the time we have this week. And a reminder, of course, as I do, it's my job to remind you of the World Outlook Conference coming up, giving away a one ounce Maple Leaf gold coin to everyone who signs up this month. It's a great Christmas present too. Just take them to the Outlook Conference. That's by the way, what I love is the community feel of it. So many people have been there numerous years. Others come for the first time, but at least I feel you know a community with everyone who comes, similar interests. They wanna hear about it from all of our experts. I enjoy it and I'm so thankful we're back in person that just enhances the quality of the debate and tons of stuff for you there. So a reminder, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the events button, presto, sign up and buy your tickets. And a reminder also, and I say this every week because I'm blown away. I could list 10 stories that are very pertinent to our uh, financial economic situation that you're not reading in the mainstream media. Well, you can get those. I do all the work for you. I just post them at Money Talks Tweets, or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Take advantage of it. Be the best informed you can possibly be. And in the meantime, I hope you go and have a terrific weekend.